We're on the record. I'm Sheila Cass. Good morning. That clock striking in the new year found us full of vim, vigor, and resolve. Sleep more, exercise more, travel the globe, keep a cleaner house, or for some of the 30 million Americans who use cigarettes, give up smoking. What does it take to kick this habit and to make that change stick? Dr. Panagis Galeatsedos is a pulmonary and critical care medicine physician. He oversees the Johns Hopkins Tobacco Treatment and Cancer Screening Clinic and co-directs Medicine for the Greater Good, a nonprofit that tries to close the gap between communities and the healthcare system. Welcome back to the show, Dr. G. Oh, it's so great to be here uh, with you all. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Why is it so hard to quit smoking? I love that question. And oftentimes when I give lectures to our medical students, to residents, and any physician, it oftentimes is the title of my talk. First, it just has a lot to do with where nicotine hijacks the brain. And you know, the neurological term is the mesolimbic area. In other more layman's terms, it's the reward center, right? It's the part of the body that if you do an action and the body liked it, it's going to make you feel good. It's going to make you feel great. It rewards you a little bit. And nicotine, and let me step back a little bit too here. It's not just nicotine, because we all eat, we all actually consume nicotine. Every listener here, I imagine, has eaten a fruit or vegetable, and a good portion of them have nicotine in them, but they're not addicted to those fruits and vegetables. You got to chemically enhance it and really bowl it acid in. Once it goes to that area and hijacks it, and they felt that reward, the brain ends up becoming more cognizant of the patterns that led up to it. Right, for some of your listeners, if they know of Pavlov's dog, that dog used to salivate every time Dr. Pavlov rang a bell. Well, it salivated because it knew it was going to get food. So for people who smoke, once they have that cigarette, their brain takes into account everything that led up to it, both external and intrinsic. And the more you do it, the more you do it, the more you do it, it becomes ingrained. And especially if you start at a young age, that ingrainment never goes away. If you talk to a person who's stopped smoking, even if it's been more for the, uh, more than a decade, they'll still tell you, I still get cravings around the bathroom where I used to go and hide and smoke my cigarettes. Yeah, that's a pattern recognition. So why is it so hard? Where nicotine hijacks is the reward center of the brain. It creates these patterns where every time you're in those certain environments and with those certain emotions, it's going to tell you to want to smoke. And the last thing I'll sh- say is this, of all the addictions in the world, most of them most individuals can say, I'm going to cut A, B, and C out and never go back to it, right? If you drink alcohol, not going to the bar is one of the first things you do. You cut that out. You don't need to go to the bar. You're doing okay. But for people who smoke, when you really dive into them with those pattern recognitions, I smoke with my coffee, I smoke in the living room, I smoke in the car, I smoke when I'm stressed, I smoke when I'm happy. Those aren't things I'm going to be able to cut out. So what you end up dealing with the patient, end up helping them, is how to still be in those environments and with those emotions and help them choose to not to smoke. That's what's so key here. And that's what makes this addiction so hard. Well, given all that, how often do people try before they're successful on average? They try pretty frequently, right? They try pretty frequently. I would say most individuals, by the time they come to see me, I would say the average age is usually around 50 or 60. They've tried two or three times. I do also want to make it clear that physicians, I know I'm throwing my colleagues under the bus, and I do that with so much love so we can be better for our patients. We've really failed our patients to become non-smokers. 
right? So I sit down with students, right? And I will say, what's the medical definition for quitting? And every single one of them kind of stumbles. They're like, did I not learn this? The answer is no, there is no medical definition for how long being absent from a cigarette means you've quit. And I take that back to the patient because quitting is just a verb. If you are a smoker, you want to become a non-smoker and that's the goal. So while you may have tried two or three times to quit, I usually ask them, what did that mean to you? Was it going a day without a cigarette? Was it going three months without a cigarette? What did that mean to you? Because the goal is not to get them to quit. That's part of it. The goal is to become a non-smoker. How do people get connected to the tobacco treatment clinic? It's like any other clinic. They may just say, hey, I, I found it online. I'm going to send them an email and connect. Other times it's like their physicians may uh, consult with us and send patients our way. But I would say to any one out there, our email address is tobacco at jhmi.edu. You can always email us and set up an appointment. We get patients in pretty quickly, usually within 10 business days. And I can tell you of all the things I've done in my career, from being a critical care doctor to a lung doctor, helping patients become a non-smoker is the most rewarding thing I've ever done. Tobacco at jhmi.edu. We will post that on, on the website. Tell us about the approach you take at the clinic. Wayne, what happens when a new patient comes in? I would say the first thing we do is actually try to rewrite the script with them. Most new patients, I will tell you, come in with their arms crossed. You know, they don't know what they're getting themselves into. They're like, are you just going to yell at me for 15 minutes? <laughs> and I make it clear, I'm not. No, this is not my... My job is to try to undo all the stigma and judgment they have felt for so many other individuals from their own physicians sometimes. Why can't you just quit? So the first few minutes are just rewriting the story and the narrative. I tell them, I catch them a little off guard with this. My goal is not get you to quit. So they look at me like, what would then, what am I doing here? Then I followed up with, my goal is to make you a non-smoker. That's your identity that you want. The second they, they, they recognize that, they're like, yeah, that is what I want. I don't want to quit and then relapse and quit because most patients will tell you I've quit thousands of times. So the goal is, first of all, to, to really catch them off guard with rewriting the narrative. After that, we spend probably then about 20 minutes going over why they smoke. And I really, I mean, sometimes it's like pulling teeth, but I need them to be honest with themselves. I need them to say it out loud. I smoke with my coffee. It makes me enjoy the coffee more. Or I smoke when I'm stressed. It helps me calm my stress down or I smoke when I'm happy. I need them to tell me how many cigarettes they do, they do in a day and when do they do them. They need to say this out loud because becoming a non-smoker means you're gonna be aware of those same moments and begin to come up with a game plan to say no to the cigarettes around it. They may ask me like, how Dr. G, how do I say no? I was like, I don't know, how did you say yes? And you gotta kind of have that come out organically where it becomes a true new habit for you. And ultimately now you're a non-smoker. Because a non-smoker means you're actively saying no to the cigarette whenever those cravings kick in. And they will also tell me where they think it's going to be an easy cigarette to say no to and a hard cigarette to say no to, and in good times and in bad times. Then after that, then we may discuss pharmacotherapy, medications. And I tell them the medication does not slap the cigarette out of your hand. You still have to be the one that says no to it. Because I'll have patients who are like, I want to do this on my own. I don't, I don't, I don't want a medication. I was like, okay, do you take Tylenol if you have some pain? Yeah. Well, Tylenol doesn't stop the pain. It just makes you not feel it so you can move on with your life. It's the same component here. These medications just reduce the cravings, make it easier for you still to say no to the cigarette. So we take that all into account. And then I come up with a plan for the next six weeks saying in some capacity to try to reduce your smoking consumption by a third. 
And if they get to it, great, tell me how they did it. If they didn't, tell me how they did into it. So the first visit is all about knowing, in the medical lingo, it's known as their smoking phenotype. But the first visit is really for them to say out loud for the first time they're probably hearing it without any stigma or judgment, why they smoke. This is On the Record on WIPR. I'm Sheila Cast speaking with Hopkins pulmonologist Dr. Panagis Galiatsados of the Johns Hopkins Tobacco Treatment and Cancer Screening Clinic about how he counsels patients who are trying to stop smoking. What you're describing really is both mindfulness and medication. You're 100% correct. The mindfulness is so important. Because when patients smoke, at some point it becomes kind of an autopilot with them, right? Because it's, again, it's the only addiction you kind of have woven into your daily life, right? That's what's so frustrating about this, right? There's no other addiction where they're like, go take a beer break, go take a cocaine break. No, but there were smoke breaks at work. We've realized smoking as an addiction still doesn't rob you of your ability to be a functional human being. So people have woven cigarette smoking into their daily lives. And when they realize those patterns, that have come about, I can't tell them to stop that. Oh my gosh, I would never tell a patient, stop drinking your coffee. So it is mindfulness, 100%. They need to be aware of their successes and their failures to saying no to a cigarette without any stigma, without any judgment, without any guilt. Because each time they're more aware of it, it sets them up for ultimate success at some point in time. With nicotine replacement therapy, gums, lozenges, patches, how do you make sure someone doesn't transfer their dependence to those. So is there a potential for those nicotine replacement therapies to have some level of addiction? There is. It's not chemically enhanced like a combustible cigarette is. Because remember, in combustible cigarettes, the traditional cigarettes, you need heat and you need all that tar in order to stabilize a kind of a enhanced nicotine molecule. I always give patients the uh, same analogy going from a grape to wine. You need some chemistry to convert it. So the nicotine replacement therapies in them themselves have a low, very low potential of addiction, right? You know, no one's ever put on a patch and leans back in a chair and goes, yes, I feel like I'm having a cigarette. Every patient, I give them that visual and they, they agree. The goal is to use these strategically when they, or their cravings are at their worst. So they can try to mitigate those cravings and then ultimately say no to it. So what we follow these patients, sometimes we'll use a long acting agent like a patch and then short-acting ones like the gum or lozenges. And what I try to take an inventory of is how they're using the, especially the short-acting products. Because the goal is ultimately get them off cigarettes, and then yes, we take them off the nicotine replacement therapies. So Sheila, that's a great question. Ultimately what it comes down to is trying to understand when they're using these products and then beginning to understand why they took two pieces of gum when they had this stressful moment, right? And come up with better strategies to respond to stress that doesn't revolve around wanting a cigarette or wanting to shut off the craving for a cigarette. So it is just close monitoring, close observation. I will say after their last cigarette, we do send them out with kind of a lifesaver, a metaphorical one of some short acting nicotine replacement therapies in case something happens. And I get, you know, they will report back to me telling me how they're doing and so forth. But close monitoring allows us to make sure we can pull that off and keep them just non-smoker without any other assistance other than some uh, counseling and touch points as we move forward. The social stigma against smoking is fairly prevalent. How does stigma come into play in healthcare settings? It's huge, Sheila. I love this profession. I love being a physician. It brings me great joy. 
this is the one disease that I, I, I become frustrated, even with my own self. So I, after medical school, I did residency and after residency, I actually took an additional year and a half of getting a master's as becoming a tobacco treatment specialist. And after that, I got, I would get so mad of thinking of myself as a resident because as a resident, I just tell a patient to quit smoking. That's it. Maybe I'd give them the quit number. And I'm thinking that's an implicit bias of our own profession. There's not a single other disease where I look a patient in the eyes and I say, quit having it and go on your own to, to quit having it, right? <laughs> quit having diabetes. And here's a quit line to stop having diabetes. We don't do that as doctors, right? We, we manage it together. We take the responsibility off the patient and put it a little bit on our shoulders because that's what doctors do. We're here to do this together, to manage it together, to get you through your highs and lows. It's a team effort. So, you know, a lot of my work that I do within the healthcare system is that education to rewrite the script for my own colleagues. Because while I love my clinic, you know, Johns Hopkins, I think we have a little over 100,000 patients who are, you know, identified as people who actively smoke. There's, I can't see them all. I would love my colleagues to take on this kind of sophisticated scientific approach with an algorithm to help our patients who smoke. They deserve it. And so I do a lot of education to rewrite the verbiage we use, right? Take away that implicit bias. Stop saying quit. There's no other disease we say that. It's an identity. You want to get them to be non-smokers ultimately. We teach the algorithms of mindfulness and counseling and how to actively use the pharmacotherapy. How do you use a little bit of motivational interviewing? So we have to take that on more and more and make sure that our own team, our own healthcare system doesn't perpetuate any of those stigmas. We should never make someone to feel guilty for doing something that society actually says, you know what, it's legal, it's there, it's accessible. And in certain communities, Sheila, it's a lot more easier to access. In the poorest areas of Baltimore City, you have a better chance of finding a cigarette than you do finding a banana. And that's a quote I've stolen from one of my patients. So we as a healthcare system, now time, if we really want to see smoking put in the history books permanently, we have to step up. We as physicians have to do better to help our patients. Briefly, as we wrap up, what's your message to people trying to stop smoking? First, find a physician that you can confide in and say, this is what I want to do. Help me come up with an algorithm. Two, tell your family that that's the journey you're going to go into and find supportive family members, ones who can empathize to some extent, knowing that you're going to go through something very challenging. And three, recognize that becoming a non-smoker doesn't happen overnight. It is a permanent journey because even with your last cigarette, you'll still get cravings. So knowing how to be a non-smoker is a lifelong commitment, but it's a powerful one and it's a healthy one. Dr. G, thank you. Thank you so much. Dr. Panagis Galeatsedos is a pulmonary and critical care medicine physician. He oversees the Johns Hopkins Tobacco Treatment and Cancer Screening Clinic. At the On the Record page at WYPR.org, we have links to more information about the clinic, as well as information about local smoking cessation programs across the state. The email to contact Dr. G's clinic is tobacco at jhmi.edu. Short break on the record. When we're back, a stoop story. I'm Sheila Cass. Stay with us.